0: Let's look to the Lord in in prayer before we begin to uh, get into uh, this lesson for this morning. Father in heaven, uh, we ask you now to speak to our hearts through your word. Lord, uh, our Savior prayed that we might be sanctified by your truth. And we pray, Lord, that that may be the case with us this day that you will hear your son's prayer for us, and bless us, Lord, accordingly. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue today to uh, address the command of Christ to love one another, I think it's important that we carefully unpack the Holy Spirit's further clarification of the nature of that loving as he spoke of it through uh, the Apostle John. John tells you and me that we are to exercise this love towards one another and, and others, not just in word and tongue, but we're to do it in deeds or actions and in truth. Now, last week, Tyler talked about discipleship and mentoring, and we're going to be talking more about uh, some of the needs that we have for that and the way we want to see that uh, unfold in the days ahead, but... uh we want to go back to this passage for a moment and unpack it just a little bit more. In First John 3:18, Peters, or rather John says, "My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth." We want to talk about this loving in truth this morning. Now, when we speak of loving in truth, it sounds simple, right? But truth, by its very nature, is a profound subject. Uh, Generally, we think of truth as simple enough. Uh, I make the statement, my tie is green, and that statement is either true or false. Some of you are paying attention to my tie for the first time this morning, and just making sure that it really is green. So, my tie is green. I make that statement, it's either true or false. I thought about wearing a blue one or a red one just to make the illustration more poignant, but I decided not to. But maybe my tie is green. If you're colorblind, it may not be green at all. It might be another color to you. Technically, it might just be a shade of green. Uh, Known perhaps by another name and not true green at all. It could be sage or aquamarine or forest or mint green or whatever this color green is, which I'm not sure what you call it. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 3, we read about an emerald rainbow. We read there, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And when you think about a rainbow, right away your mind goes to all different colors. But then you're told that this is a, a rainbow like an emerald. And that implies that it's a rainbow of green of different shades rather than just one shade. If you're watching at home, depending on what sort of monitor you're using and how you've set your color options, it may be a color much different from what people here in the room are seeing, especially in light of these LED lights shining on my, my tie here. Uh, Bonnie was sketching the landscape as we were driving along Uh, on our trip and she had maybe 20 different colored markers clutched in her hand and uh, as she was working she looked over to me and said I should have brought more colors (laughs) and there's so many variations and shades that even the whole set couldn't have captured all the colors visible even when most of it would all fall under the general category of green. Now, the more consequential the venue or the setting, the more important it is to nail down the truth about something. But often it's harder to do so. That's illustrated for us in a moment from Christ's life. Your Savior is standing before the Roman governor Pilate, and they have this exchange. It's in John chapter 18, beginning in verse 37. Pilate therefore said to him, that is to Jesus, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I came into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What? Yeah, what is truth? What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Now Jesus, of course, was speaking truth, real truth. But Pilate was, re- was expressing the frustration that arises, especially in formal settings, especially in political settings, in trying to, To settle on what is really true. It is the half pitying, half impatient question of a practical man of the world whose experience of life has convinced him that truth is a dream of enthusiasts, says Plummer. He asked the question as a as just of the average man. Pilate knew all too well just how truth could be twisted colored, and made elusive. And therefore, it didn't mean much to him. When Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth, Pilate's answer was what is truth? it's, It's different all the time. But truth in the biblical sense, beloved, is a beautiful thing. Truth in the biblical sense is an obvious thing. Truth in the biblical sense is wholly credible. Truth in the biblical sense is genuine and it is right from every angle. No matter what direction you come from, it remains true. It remains what it is. Truth itself, obvious, beautiful, credible in every way. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4, We're told that he that is the Lord is the rock, his work, it's perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And the God who is all those things has provided for us his word and his word is truth. In Psalm 57 verse 10 it says for your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth under the clouds. In Psalm 119 in verse 160 David writes the entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. In John chapter 17 verse 17 I mentioned this earlier in my prayer Jesus himself says sanctify them my disciples by your truth your word is truth now it's true that men and women try to bend they try to distort the truth but because of its nature when that is attempted it seems to be exactly that a torturous twisting of what is simply and beautifully true. We hear people do it with the Bible. They they take verses from the Bible and they twist them and they distort them and they, they mangle them. But that's exactly what it looks like when they do it and what it sounds like to the ear. And you'll notice when people take the word of God and they do try to distort it and they do try to twist it, that these attempts are never in order to make the word of God more comforting or more beautiful or more complete or more satisfying to the soul. That's never the aim. The aim is always something different than that. They're always either, the aims are always either evil and dark or they're conjured up to make men and women more comfortable in their sin or in their skepticism. You never find anybody taking a portion of the word of God and saying, well, we need to twist this a little bit and turn it so we'll all be comforted more by it in our spirits. It's Let's twist it and turn it so we can be more comfortable in our sin. So we can be more complacent in our unbelief. Whether we're talking about the additions to the word thrown together by cult leaders or the musings of pseudo apostles or progressive, unregenerate clerical academics, it's the same. When they lay their hands on the word of God, they don't try to render the truth more obvious, they try to make it more obscure. They don't contribute to its credibility. But by suggesting the incredible, they draw minds off from the reliability and the believability of the word of God. And rather than enhancing its beauty and righteousness from every angle, they obscure and distort the vision of their students and followers so they cannot see the truth. They are those who, Peter says, are untaught and unstable people, who twist to their own destruction the word of God. And they do it with all the scriptures. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16. Now, we know the prime mover in all of this, don't we? We know where who, who's behind all of this distortion and twisting of the word of God. It's the enemy of all righteousness. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 2 through 4, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the lay of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now it's shameful, isn't it? That men and women should handle the word of God so deceitfully, so disingenuously, so falsely, and so deceitfully. Isn't it a shame? That the enemy of all righteousness, Satan, should find so many willing accomplices in distorting and obscuring the truth. And they're everywhere. I don't know about you, but I find myself cringing all the time. When non-believers try to explain or portray the gospel. And they do it and it just makes you cringe because you know they have no idea what they're talking about when they take the teachings of the Word of God, or, or even when they're trying to describe a sincere Christian life, they don't know what they're talking about. And they miss the mark. And it makes you cringe to hear them say it. Because they're speaking with great authority. This is what a Christian is. And you as a Christian know, no, that's not what a Christian is. But they say it with authority. So often... Even when they're trying to get it right, or at least not trying to trash Christianity, they still get it wrong. So we end up with two whole groups of people whose goal ultimately it is to distort and twist the truth, to make the gospel something it's not, either to fit their agenda, to fit their lifestyle or simply to undermine its plain and simple truth. Then you have those who may be sincere, but because they're unregenerate, they're ignorant of the true nature of the gospel, and all they do in in their sincerity (coughs) is make it more obscure and less credible and less genuine in the eyes of others. Our task in the world, beloved, as Christians, is to seek, by lovingly serving Christ, to contradict the gainsayers and the liars, and to educate the unknowing and be a witness to all of the simple truth of the gospel, its beauty, its obvious and logical character, as the holy, credible, and genuine truth that sparkles with righteousness, from every angle. (coughs) Excuse me. That's our calling. to, To just show the simple truth and make it known. But here's the rub. Beloved, it's not just the cult propagandist. Or the pseudo-Gnostic who watches some National Geographic special on the hidden or forbidden or forgotten Gospels and suddenly believes that he or she is an expert on all spiritual matters. Or some progressive cleric with an eye for the itching-eared crowd that gets between the obvious, simple, credible testimony to God's genuine and righteous testimony to the truth. It's sometimes the Christian. It's sometimes you. It's sometimes me. The Christian who at home or in the context of the church or even out in the world twists, distorts, obscures, or draws away from the simple, profound, obvious beauty of the truth of God's word. Sometimes we all allow the love of Christ manifested by the loving of others truly and in deeds and in deeds To give way to love of self, perhaps even sin, and sometimes in trade for the world. And sometimes it's even more serious than than an occasional stumble. Sometimes it's a more habitual manner of speaking and acting that by its very nature, undermines our profession harms our testimony and rather than adorning the gospel obscures and distorts the gospel it goes on sometimes in the home it goes on sometimes even in the business and work of the church and it certainly goes on in the face of the world at times. It's the kind of behavior that leads those outside of Christ to say things like, if that's the life or the character that the gospel creates, I might as well go on without it. If that's it, then why embrace the gospel? Things like, I know people who make no claims to Christianity who are better behaved than he or she is in this situation or that. Who reacts better to this or reacts better to that. Or comments like, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I'd rather not be one. Now, I'll grant you that these comments are often generated by the distorted and twisted portrayals of christianity inspired not by christ but men and women who hate the truth or who are utterly ignorant of the true nature of the truth but we would be naive to believe that such comments are limited to the antics and efforts of those who make no claims to christ Sometimes it's because my life in one fashion or another, in one moment or another, doesn't adorn, but obscures the simple beauty and the plain truth of God's righteous word. Now, right here for just a moment, we're going to change gears a bit. But we'll come back around to this matter rather quickly. So just bear with me for a moment. Let me ask you as Christians, what exactly is it that you found by the gospel of Jesus Christ? What did you find? You who believe and who have the witness of the Holy Spirit in you, that, uh, and in your hearts that you're Christ and he's yours. What have you found as Christians? That could be answered, of course, in many ways but let me offer one image that Jesus himself gives to you and me. And Mr. Brillhart read it for us just a few moments ago. It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 10 and verse 9. The Gospel of John, chapter 10 and verse 9. Jesus is speaking. And listen to the simplicity of this truth. Listen to it. I am the door, Jesus says. If anyone enters by me, he shall be saved. And will go in and out and find pasture. Aren't those beautiful words? I am the door. If anyone comes in, comes into fellowship with the living God by me, he or she will be saved. That's the promise given. And that one who is saved, they will come in, they will go in and out and find pasture. What do we see here in this plain statement of the truth? Well, it's worth noting how Jesus has gone from speaking specifically of the Jews. If you look at the opening verses there in in John chapter 10, he's talking about the Jews, the, the sheep of his pasture. And his being the way of salvation for them. But here in verse 9, he opens it up even further, and he doesn't say, I am the door to those sheep of Israel. I am the door. And any man, any woman, any person who comes in through me will be saved. And he's now not just speaking of himself as the door for the lost sheep of Israel. But he declares, I'm the door of salvation for everyone. And you can take up the details of this in another context or study. Just notice now that in Jesus Christ, by the instruction of the gospel, you have found the door of salvation. That's what you found in Jesus Christ. Anyone who enters in by him will be saved. He is the door by which you and I may enter into the presence of the living God. A.W. Pink says this, and it's a long quote, but bear with me in it because I think it's worth hearing. By nature we are separated, yea, alienated from God. Sin as a barrier comes in between and bars us out of his holy presence. The Lord Jesus has bridged that awful gulf which separated me from God. He bridged it by taking my place and being made a curse in my stead. And as the exercised soul bows to God's sentence of condemnation and receives by faith the marvelous provision which his grace has made, I, with all other believers, learn. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of God of Christ, Ephesians 2.13. Now, beloved, there's so much that ought to be said here, but we're simply reviewing. So, So think of it in this way. How easy it is to gain access by this door rather than by the thousands of other means men have invented or suggested like works or, or complicated and hidden truths that, that have to be discovered through, through secret instruction and so on. When you came in here this morning, did you have any trouble getting in this building? Any trouble at all? No, you just walked right through the door, right? And came on in. The door swung open for you, and you were in here. There had been a sign out front that said, this is the entrance, but first you have to. And then there was like a, a, a sign with 15 instructions before you go through the door. It would be a whole different thing, wouldn't it? And Jesus is presenting himself here in this simple way. Through me, through me, through faith in me and my work at Calvary. That's how souls are saved. So this beloved is part of our witness for Christ. By loving in deeds and in truth, we're demonstrating that Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but by Him. It's that simple, the truth of the gospel. There's no other name given among men by which you must be saved. You must come through this door, but once you do, you will be saved. That's the simple promise. Jesus says, through me and by no other way. And we see the simplicity and the directness of the truth that we've been talking about. There is a genuineness in it that arises from its simplicity and the plain way that Jesus speaks of it. And here Jesus is saying so plainly, come through the door, If you come, I am the door, come through me, and you will be saved. And you have people who want to argue and want to bring up more complex ideas of how this is to be approached and make it obscure in every way they possibly can. And Jesus speaks of it so plainly. And then look at the liberty, the great liberty that's spoken of here. Those who come in through him then can go in and out. Go in and out. And don't be confused by this. <coughs> this is the idea of slipping in and out of your salvation. That's not what Jesus is referring to here. But it's the prick that's a picture of the freedom with which you and I walk in peace before God. Remember, Jesus is contrasting this to the law, where there was a system of constant sacrifices. And you could only be acceptable by keeping up those sacrifices. Sacrifices for sins, personal sins, national sins. There were sacrifices for intentional sins. There were sacrifices for unintentional sins. There were sacrifices just to be able to give thanks or to offer adoration. You couldn't go near the presence of God without some sort of sacrifice being offered to cover that approach. And the sacrifice had to be done in sincerity and according to all the dictates of the law. But think about how you came in here this morning to worship the Lord. Think about how you can go into his presence in prayer. You go in and out. Freely. Freely. Why? Because you have one sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, for all your sin. And because that sacrifice has been made, you have free access with God. And you can come here and you can call upon his name and you can glorify his name and you can find peace from his word and from his promises to you and you go in and out that way and you are shepherded by the one who loves you more than you love yourself. You have the one sacrifice that grants you free access at all times. And you're free to come in and out with joy. You enjoy great spiritual freedom in Christ. A wonderful peace of mind living with and in Christ without anxiety or fear. And you contrast that, beloved, with the people around you in the world who live in fear and dread and concern and anxiety. That's the way they live because they don't have Christ in their lives, because they don't have God's word to feed them and and to strengthen them and to encourage them. And so they're filled with this anxiousness. And here you are, the testimony to the truth. What truth? This simple truth that Jesus is the door, and if you enter through him, you shall be saved and you can go in and out with peace and with joy. And going in and out, what do you find? Pasture, green pastures, full and gracious provisions in all the circumstances of life. So that you may say, not out of habit, not out of sentimentality, But out of conviction, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not want. I shall be abundantly refreshed and fed. Because I came in through the door. And I found now these pastures. And I go in and out. And rejoice in them. As sheep are cared for by their shepherds, says George Hutchison, secured in their fold, brought out to pasture, are watched over there so that they should find in him protection and refreshment. And as men in times of peace, men go out and securely about their affairs, so should they, that is, believers, walk securely under him, under his shepherding. Now let me come back around. The question before us is this. Does my life and testimony for Christ exhibit clearly and plainly these things? These things we've just talked about. Does it adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or does it obscure it? Does it allow, by examination, another person to see the beauty of the gospel and biblical truth from every angle? As we think about that and we examine our lives, we have some guidelines for prayer as we do. The first thing is to pray for understanding. Praying for yourselves like Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 17 and 19. Paul prayed there that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to me the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That the eyes of my understanding, being enlightened, that I may know what is the hope of his calling." What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward we who believe, according to the working of his mighty power? In other words, we pray that these things would be ours. Lord, open my eyes. Let me see this. Let me understand what it means to go in and out and find pasture. Let me know what a blessing it is to me to have walked through the door and to have been saved. And now to be a new creature in Christ Jesus and have my whole life turned around so that I can be a witness of those things to those who don't know them, who don't see them, who don't hear them from other sources. We can pray for ourselves as Paul said to the Romans in Romans twelve two, that I might not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of my mind that I may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of god so first is the prayer for understanding what is god's does god's word say what does his truth declare then the second thing to pray for is conviction that god would search you and know you and reveal any unrighteousness in you and convict you of any behavior That might serve to obscure or distort the gospel's plain message in the eyes of others. If you're a sincere believer, I think you know that you can't take that for granted. No sincere believer believes that his or her life is so much in conformity to Christ and that they're so sanctified that they never obscure the truth of God's word, or the beauty of the gospel. We ask the Lord to examine us, to prove us, to try us, and to see if there be any wicked way in us. Thirdly, then, is to pray for forgiveness. When those convictions are brought to us, and we see I'm not behaving a Christ-like way in this context or in this moment, that we pray for forgiveness. We know that we have that forgiveness. We go in and out in peace in Christ. But the confession of sin is a precious and blessed thing under Christ. I don't know of any happier words than those of John in his first chapter of his epistle, of his first epistle, verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I can't think of happier words in the scripture than this. You confess, he'll forgive and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then lastly, we need to pray for strength and grace. It's one thing to know what the will of the Lord is. It's another to find forgiveness when we find ourselves coming short of that will. But it's still another to actually enjoy the grace and the strength of God to conform to it with joy and be able to be a living testimony to others of that truth. To not just lovingly bear witness to, In word and tongue, but in truth, whether at home, or in the church, or in the world. We raced to Albuquerque to get there in time for the service. I told several people in the church that we drove because we were going to have a vacation afterwards. And that vacation was going to begin as soon as I preached and the benediction was pronounced. When they said amen, I was on vacation. Next morning, we drove to catch a train ride through the mountains there in uh, New Mexico. But at the depot, the agents, all the ticket agents were on the phone. And there were two of them, and they were on the phone for 15 minutes while Bonnie stood there waiting to ask if there were any tickets available to ride the next day. I was a little frustrated. Here we were, our first stop on vacation, and things weren't going as planned. We left without ever speaking to an agent, never saw a train. The eating establishments in this little town were limited, and so we grabbed a sandwich and looked for a place to stay. We ate in our room, and we started to relax a little bit. And within a few hours, I was as sick as I have ever been in my life. Just walking across the room, I almost passed out, and I've never passed out. I've never been in that kind of position before in my life. That's how sick I was. I was frustrated. This was not the way these things were supposed to go. We were supposed to have a train ride, and I was supposed to be well and enjoying my vacation, not barely making it from bed to the bathroom, not to be too crass. The next day, Bonnie pointed out graciously how blessed we are that we didn't buy and weren't allowed to buy those expensive, unrefundable tickets. I wasn't going to be taking a train anywhere. We finally ventured out. I was weak and and nauseated, but we wanted to get to a little better location in case things got worse. We were driving along the same path, that relatively the same path that the train took. But it would have gone that day. We drove through canyons and valleys among some really beautiful scenery. And while we were going along, I caught a little movement out of the corner of my eye. I drove a little further down and turned around and came back to that scene. It was a stretch of railroad track running along a ridge. And coming down that track out of the woods was a cowboy on horseback with two dogs and another young horse behind We sat and watched as those dogs and the cowboy dropped down off the tracks and into a hollow filled with sheep. And together they drove the sheep around that bowl of the hollow and up the hill and over the railroad tracks and out of sight. It was like a scene from a movie. It really was. We turned around and went on. For four days, I fought my illness and discomfort. And just as I finally started to feel a little bit better, you know what happened. Bonnie got ill. I was frustrated. It wasn't supposed to be this way. We limped along, and I was feeling more and more dissatisfied and more and more depressed. What sort of vacation was this? Driven all this way only to go there to be sick and not see anything but a motel room and a cowboy. <laughs> Sunday afternoon we were riding along and we were listening to the reading of the Gospel of John. And the reader came to John ten and verse nine. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And the scene of that cowboy and his sheep flooded my mind, coupled with the word of God. And I was convicted and broken in heart because of my attitude. So I had a little illness. And things weren't quite as I envisioned and planned. I was still going in and out and finding pasture, sweet, blessed pasture at the hands of the Good Shepherd. And out of all of that came what I've shared with you here today. I'd allowed my selfish heart to begin to obscure the simple, genuine, clear nature of God's beautiful truth. Not only in myself, but before my helpmate. May he ever grant, beloved, you and me, the strength to lovingly bear witness truthfully, not just in word and tongue, but in deeds, In all our daily living. So that we are truly and really being a witness to his truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that we may never be found in the way of the clear, pure, beautiful, genuine witness of your truth. Lord, that's our prayer, and we know that we can only do it by your strength. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what, what it is to, to live for you in and, and all the context of our lives.